some huge benefits if we can get some of those elements of transparency but I still think it's going to be quite a significant cultural shift for us as humans to not have someone responsible. Kia ora folks and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey and you just heard from Kirsten K.P. Patterson talking about DAOs and the impact that autonomous governance could have on our human-led social structures. KP is the chief executive of the Institute of Directors New Zealand that now has over 10,500 members. In this conversation, we talk about all things governance, corporate and not-for-profit, some trends in the tech industry, including AI and DAOs, and a favorite topic of mine, responsibility. Where is the parental supervision? I hope you enjoy my conversation with KP. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. Uh, so KP, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming in today or up from where you've come from. Yeah, Wellington, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so uh, just right before I clicked record, you said you're up to 10,500 members. How, how on earth does someone manage an organization like that? And who, who are these members? What are we talking about? Yeah, so uh, Institute of Directors members, uh, leading organisations and uh, community and um, businesses as well, right across New Zealand. So it's everything from NZX listed, Deloitte top 200 businesses, you know, fully what we would call professional directors and what often people think about as a director, uh, through to people serving on their school board of trustees, um, serving on not-for-profits, um, sports clubs, uh, people running their own businesses, everything in between. So anyone who's interested in governance, and as a director, uh, has the option to join the IOD. We're a voluntary organisation, so people join because they want to get better at the art and the science of governance and, and network with like-minded people and um, be challenged and stretched, which is great. And so how many businesses do you know are in New Zealand? Do you know? uh, I'd have no idea, honestly. Okay. <laughs> I have this conversation with the company's office all the time because people always say to me, well, how many directors are there in New yeah. Zealand? Uh, and the answer is actually there are hundreds of thousands because, um, you know, a a director also includes every butcher, every hairdresser who's running their own business, right? Yeah. So, uh, and we, you know, we know that the kind of figure that we use is, you know, that 80% of New Zealand's population is made up of um, SMEs. But even the company's office have said, we really just don't know fully how many directors are out there and, um, and how many businesses, but uh, yeah, lots. And so presumably your proportion of members is also scaled according to, you know, there's more small businesses than medium and more, you know, uh, or fewer uh, large businesses than medium businesses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've got about 95% uh, of the NZX50 chairs who are members. There's a couple who aren't and they know they're not. And I, there's this one point <laughs> in time I just love to finish the set, you know, just for one day because I'm a collector. Uh, and about 75% of the NZX independent directors are members. So really great um, representation from yep. those larger listed corporates. But as I said, you know, right through and 51% and of our members have told us that they 
have a not-for-profit role. And for many of them, that will be their primary board role, like me, you know, in terms of uh, the boards I'm involved in, uh, primarily not-for-profit. And the distinction there is that if you're a board of an NZX-listed company, uh, one of your main responsibilities is to, uh, I guess, produce value for the shareholders, yeah. uh, whereas you know the nonprofits are like your school boards uh, and various other things that are really looking out for the community. Yeah, absolutely, and it's an interesting question, isn't it, about what does value mean? You know, I think we've shifted a lot from perhaps 20 years ago where value meant profit. Uh, and only profit, and value meant just for the shareholders. I think there's a much broader conversation happening, even in those larger corporate boards, about what does long-term value mean rather than just short-term share price. Okay, so you've just come from, uh, did you say the AGM? Yes, the Auckland branch AGM uh, held held their uh, meeting this morning. And, uh, you know, in terms of, I guess, what you're seeing, uh, like you just mentioned, um, how do you how do you quantify this shift away from it's not all about profits and how can you, uh, to use a bad phrase, how can you sell that to people to convince them that actually, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, groups of stock exchange listed companies or these groups of uh, corporates, which perhaps sometimes get bad press, how can you convince people or uh, really make them aware that actually, no, it's not all about profits, maybe mostly, but not all. Yeah, and, and profit's not a dirty word, right? You know, because profit allows us to invest in our people. It allows us to invest in our organisations um, and, you know, and, and makes the economy go round and it means that we can um, use it to buy things that we want. Um, whether that's at home or whether that's as a community in terms of tax. So, you know, it's not a a, a bad thing. Um, But I think there's been quite a societal shift about our expectations um, as consumers um, on corporates. And as our um, community has expanded from just shareholders to much broader stakeholders uh, and as the kind of community expectations shifted, I I think, you know, that we do care about um, how our profits are achieved. We care about where those businesses are operating. We care about the externalities that they're putting back into our communities, issues like climate change, issues about transparency in our supply chain. Um, It's called modern slavery, and I hate that term. I prefer modern anti-slavery. But, um, you know, uh, those sorts of issues, you know, we are concerned about the intergenerational impact of how we build really great long-serving organisations that, you know, contribute to being good citizens that we could have, you know, social licence to operate, you know, is the company a a good neighbour, all of those sorts of issues Um, because we know that the organisations who are focused on those sorts of things actually will be developing um, much higher value and returning greater profit because we as consumers will buy more of their products. Uh, We as employees will want to work for those organisations so they'll attract great talent uh, so their costs will be lower. All of those sorts of things, banks want to invest in them, capital wants to invest in them. Uh, And we're seeing that from, you know, investors are really focused on low carbon businesses, for example. So that's been a a really big shift. And um, I think there's a a great kind of uh, understanding kind of happening that, um, you know, business isn't bad, uh, but business (laughs) can have, uh, you know, can actually have um, some positive impacts when done well. Right. Business, I mean, de- definitely not bad. I used to I used to think business was boring and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I steered away from it. I My kids would agree with you. Studied yeah. heavy, heavily technical subjects, uh, I mean, I guess up, up to this day. But like uh, I'm, I'm coming around to the fact that like business is essential. Uh, and, and like you say, profit should not be a dirty word. 
Um, but th there are some other words that you know do have certain stigmas, um, and you mentioned some pretty big issues here. So, like, how, how big is this climate issue in boards mm -hmm. in directorships today? Uh, is it on everyone's plate all the time? Uh, it's not on everyone's plate, and it should be, but it doesn't. It shouldn't necessarily be there all the time as the number one uh, kind of issue. It's, we identify a range of issues for directors to be focused on as the priorities each year, on top of everything else they've already got to do. Uh, and one of the the number one issue we identified for this year was actually climate transformation. Okay. And it's been on our list for a number of years. What does that um, mean? So we're at the stage now where we know climate change is real. So we've we've kind of moved on from from that aspect. Uh, we we've kind of moved to the now actually having to transform our businesses as a result of climate. So what's happening around particularly reporting structures? A number of our entities here in New Zealand uh, will be world first. We'll have to have reporting around their carbon uh, and climate reporting coming in. Uh, even though that's kind of the top two hundred finance and insurance companies, that'll spread to everybody else. And a number of other organisations are already doing that. Lots of global trends happening there. Um, how are they investing in terms of the transformation to decarbonise? Uh, and so some of the choices and things that we're having to having to make. Uh, so the, the climate one's a really difficult one because when, when we think about that short-term, long-term, on the one hand, it's easy to be making climate decisions because the boards have shifted to a longer intergenerational view. But on the other hand, it's incredibly hard because it is a short-term investment for that long-term return. And at the moment, it can be really hard to make the business case add up about you know, this generation of shareholders and this generation of the business having to make that big, big shift. And also a lot of the issues that we're asking boards to, to you know, sort of lean into and some of the solutions that they're going to have to find, the technology is not currently known. Uh, so we're saying, please set these big kind of lofty climate goals for all of us, for the benefit of all of us and, and for the planet, uh, but please don't greenwash. So, you know, that's a really hard balance yeah. for them to sort of, you know, how do I set a, a lofty goal that we're going to reduce our carbon emissions as an organisation if I'm an airline like Air New Zealand, when that technology at the moment does not exist, right? We all still want to fly around the world. We still need products flying around the world. Um, so, you know, New Zealand's doing a lot of work in that space. But at the moment, we still need fossil fuels to fly the majority <laughs> of aeroplanes, right? They, uh, Air New Zealand yeah. has this great uh, ad, uh, television commercial, what have you. And they say that they're going to be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the wording is, but some sort of net zero carbon free mm. in, a, in a short period of time. And they even like at the end have a, have a mock-up of, I think, uh, electrical propellers. Yeah, 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 and and hydrogen hydrogen planes and all that sorts of things. That was what it was. Right? Yes, yeah. yes, Hi hydrogen powered yeah. powered aircraft. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, is 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 that their version of saying, "Hey, look, we're doing this," uh, but oh, by the way, you know, we still have to use diesel to power our fleet. Yeah, in the meantime, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a lot of innovation happening right across that particular industry because there's a, you know, there's a global recognition that things like air travel uh, and our transport emissions are one of the biggest things that are that you know that's impacting on um, us getting to a low carbon economy and that's not just air travel, that's all of us moving to electrifying fleets and other things and, and more public transport and all of those different kind of issues which can be really difficult in a long and skinny 
and hilly country like New Zealand, <laughs> trying Without to argue. <laughs> yeah, so you know, so it's a multi-headed kind of beast of the kind of challenges um, that we're asking boards to to sort of lean into. But you know, we're seeing some, you know, some great sort of leaning into some of those technological challenges and innovation happening, and it's starting to move really fast. Um, but climate's a really big challenge for for boards to be thinking about how you know they're dealing with carbon and, and then also their impact on nature, you yeah. know, what resources they're using, water, what impact are they having on biodiversity in those areas. So, yeah, I don't think you could say business is boring anymore, that's for sure. So part of the board's responsibility, and correct me where I'm wrong here, is that they have to, like, weed through these reports and, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, uh, assess the direction of, of the company, uh, and this may involve really technical complicated things mm -hmm. like counting carbon footprints and impact uh, of the business operations. Uh, where, where are we on this? Are we uh, sort of still in the weeds on this or are people coming up to speed on on how to do this? Uh, it's, a, it's a challenge for all of us, right? So the, um, you know, one of the things that we've done with the Institute of Directors that we're hosting uh, the Chapter Zero um, on, and we're partnered with the World Economic Forum to host the New Zealand chapter for Chapter Zero. It's the Climate Governance Initiative for Directors. We've made it freely available to everyone. You don't have to be a member of the IOD because we recognise it's such an important topic. And specifically that um, that chapter is there to try and upskill directors and to help them make climate a priority in the boardroom because we recognise there's just so much information coming at them. And, you know, Chapter Zero provides that sort of governance lens, that New Zealand context, that curation uh, and that sort of guidance and training and, you know, webcasts and summaries and all those sorts yep. of things. You know, one of the things that I've found most helpful is a lexicon because all of a sudden there's this new language I had to learn, you know. And uh, so, you know, so all those sorts of uh, tools and tricks to be able to help people. But you know, the range of issues directors have to be over is really significant. So everything from, you know, the accounting uh, through to culture issues, uh, health and safety, supply chains, uh, the product of the business, the industry that they're in, uh, through through to issues like climate change and technology, it's it's a massive breadth of issues. So you know, people often say, "I'd love to be on a board. I love working in a team." Okay. And I say, <laughs> "Yep, boards are great. They are a, a team environment for a day or two a month. The rest of the time, you'll be at home." doing a lot of reading on your own. So, yeah, if that doesn't fit for you, you don't like reading piles of information and, you know, doing some thinking on your own, it's not going to be a good fit for you. How, um, you just got me thinking there, how, how do we get to this point where companies need a board of directors and these people come together once a month yeah. to check in and then, as you say, spend their evenings, you know, catching up or, or doing the reading? Um, in, in terms of, like, company structure, do you have any... Yeah, so we did some research with the company's office and biz.gov.nz, um, sort of uh, particularly with their SME sector about what they sort of thought of governance. Uh, and it's really interesting because, you know, at its core, great governance should be kind of, I call it like a little bit like a dragon's den, right? So you're going in and testing ideas, getting some coaching and mentoring and helping the business kind of, you know, move forward. Whereas actually the research said to us that they see governance as kind of being controlling about compliance, about looking backwards, and it, and it shouldn't be. But um, from, from the research that we've done, it seems to be organisations start thinking about governance and setting up a board or whether it's an advisory board about the 10 to 15 mil turnover point. 
Okay. Because uh, that's the kind of point where all of a sudden the bank's sort of saying to them, hey, you, you know, you need to get away from it just being the two of you running it. You need a bit more external advice. And normally it starts with um, their chartered accountant joining the board, their lawyer, uh, someone that they know in an advisory board kind of capacity. When it's got to that size and scale where they actually need to have a little bit more perspective on the business, kind of coming up, looking more out to the horizon, um, get out of the day-to-day, work on the business, not just in it. And it seems to be about that kind of point. Uh, so about $10 million that's in revenue? Yes, yeah. <clears throat> Okay. Yeah. And it varies, you know, look, we see some organisations have got boards right from the very beginning, particularly in the tech space, uh, because, you know, they're trying to, if it's a startup and they're trying to move really fast, or they've got private equity involved, so there'll be, um, often there'll be a shareholder um, director sitting on the board, or that they're positioning themselves for exit at some point. So they want yeah. to set up those really good kind of, um, you know, behaviours and things. So it varies across different things, but in a commercial kind of New Zealand SME context, about that 10, 15 mil. And uh, just one more note on this, is New Zealand doing well in this area in terms of um, companies being responsible, having good directorship, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think generally they are. You know, we see the occasional um, issue in the media with, you know, directors and it says directors behaving badly or directors haven't paid, you know, IRD, those sorts of things. Primarily most of those are, um, are sole directors in their own businesses, right? So it's really, are they directors and running a business it's as much that they've been creating a job for themselves and, you know, running it as, you know, their kind of operation. Uh, so we don't usually see boards getting themselves into too much trouble. So I think generally there's some some um, some really great directors that I get to see. And uh, in my role as um, Deputy Chair and Incoming Chair for the Global Network of Directors Institutes, uh, the GNDI, which is all of the IODs around the world, uh, I think New Zealand compares pretty well. Okay, so that's that's like a third level up. You're yeah. you're already in kind of a meta position, yeah. director of a group of directors, and then there's a a, a further step up as well, um, in in the global sense. Let's uh, transition a little bit to to tech. Mm. You uh, recently had uh, the Institute of Directors conference uh, just last month, and uh, my co-founder Brian Ventura, uh, you asked him to come come along and present. And uh, so he presented on, I don't know exactly what, on something to do with uh, blockchain tech yeah, and maybe exactly. regulation, something like that. Um, so I found that interesting that, you know, as a blockchain-focused tech presentation, even if it's from the regulatory side, uh, he's in front of a group of directors uh, that are trying to, you know, provide better governance for their mm. various uh, foundations or companies. Um, so where do you see this crossover and perhaps maybe what, type of tech trends are people talking about at, at this conference or, you know, what advice are people asking for? Yeah. If they're saying, hey, uh, I've, I've heard about blockchain, is that going to completely tank my business? Do I need to know? What are you seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I've been in the role about six years now with the Institute of Directors and one of my very first um, conferences, well, I'm really lucky I get to go up to our American Colleagues Conference uh, in Washington, D.C. each October. Uh, and in 2018, I actually brought down one of the U.S. speakers, Dr. Tamika Tillerman, who was the chair of the uh, Global Blockchain Business Council at the time okay. uh, to come and speak to our conference for IOD members in 2018. So it's been an issue that we've been kind of trying to raise with directors and, and to kind of help them upskill and, and challenge them a little bit to think about things that are happening for um, for quite a number number of years now. Uh, but uh, the 
I'm a little disappointed, I'd say, and, and just in terms of how much engagement we're kind of getting from boards engaging on technology to the level okay. that we'd kind of like. So we, This is in general. In general, yeah. in general. So, um, you know, for example, uh, here in New Zealand, um, if I do the comparison with cybersecurity, you know, that's a, that's an if, not, you know, like a when rather than if, you know, like we know we're going to get hit if we haven't already been hit, right? They're probably already Very in there. Very important, right? So, yeah. so, you know, and that's a, um, if I look at my global comparisons against my colleagues in the US, Canada, Singapore, Australia, and the UK, South Africa, um, cybersecurity is one of the top three issues um, or the number one issue that's keeping directors awake at night. Um, here in New Zealand, it doesn't even make the top three. Um, no, why? No. <laughs> why? Okay. Why do we think that, you know, we're either got it covered or we're naive enough to think that we're not going to get sort of attacked? Uh, correspondingly, we're really high on climate. So, you know, one of our top spots is taken by climate where my international colleagues haven't quite got climate to All that right. level yet. Mm -hmm. They're sort of depending upon, you know, US context, for example. They've got some challenges um, on that front. Uh, but we also do a director sentiment survey every year where we test directors on what's keeping them awake, you know, what are the issues that are playing out for their businesses. Um, and I bought some of the stats because we asked them what's the single biggest risk facing their organisation and technological okay. disruption was 12th on the list. So okay. eleven, perhaps higher priorities or different yeah. priorities. Yeah, only so only eight point two percent of the people we surveyed said that uh, tech disruption was the biggest issue facing them. And in terms of the future trends that they were paying attention to, um, AI was seventh on the list. So you know, to be fair, this was September last year. Um, so AI was seventh on the list. Right, slightly before the GPT yeah, explosion. Yeah, so, so I'm kind of like, mm, I might give you a pass mark on that, but still, um, that was 14%. Metaverse was ninth on the list. Wow, okay. Crypto was 10th on the list at only 1.3%, and DAOs was 11th on the list at 1.3%. Right, so, but against the thing that really surprised me, 49% of them have said that they assessed the impact of technology, automation, and AI on their business. How can half of them say that yep. they've assessed the impact of technology, automation, and and AI, and then only you know 14% of them say that they're paying attention to AI? Clearly, haven't assessed it very well, right? Uh, so yeah, I mean, we just did another AI pulse survey of the membership in the last couple of weeks, that's shifted significantly, chat GPT. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to see more of the foresight work happening and not just the response. So a bit more proactive kind of um, tech engagement is really critical. Were these responses prompted uh, or were yeah. they volunteered? We, we prompted them. We prompted them on the issues that we um, wanted to know the answers to. Uh, and that's why we put... Dow's in there, for example. Yep. Very, very, very low response. I'm, I mean, I'm impressed you put things like metaverse and, uh, and a Dow yeah. and crypto <laughs> into a potential list of this was risks, was it? Yeah, issues. Yeah, absolutely. Or yep. issues. Okay. Future trends. And I mean, yeah, in, in terms of tech disruption, like, is this is this because you think some of us are unaware or is this because we're already in the tech business and therefore think that we have a handle on it? And so perhaps that's not in the risk category, but in the like ongoing stuff that we deal with category. 
Uh, well, we put it as a trend, not as a risk. So it okay. was up to them as to how they would yep. um, define it as positive or a negative. Um, you know, and even if it was on the risk, there's still opportunities from it too, right? Right across the community, we will have some who will be deeply engaged in this issue, right, and are leading some amazing work. But then we'll have others who go, I don't understand this topic at all. Um, and, you know, like, you know, what's, um, it's, I've got so much to learn on it. And we did in terms of the Pulse survey, really interesting results in terms of the numbers who are, um, you know, using uh, particularly ChatGPT or using AI. And oh, we asked them for a gut feel positively or negatively, yep. what's your view about, you know, whether AI is going to be positive? And almost 80% said gen that they felt that it was going to be positive. Uh, so that's hopeful. That but is very hopeful. I like uh, that. Yes. So, so that's, you know, that it's a good thing. But we actually had some who also said that they thought it was going to be uh, negative as well. So that was that was quite an interesting kind of piece as well. So, you know, the when I asked them, uh, you know, is it positive or negative, 10% have said negative. So there's a group that don't know, and that's okay too, because at least they're thinking about it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, 10% of the pulse, and it was a really small survey, it was only about 275, but 10% have said, actually, I think AI is going to be negative. Okay, well, that, I mean, that's not too small to, to have, yeah. have results on. Um, I, I'm actually, yeah, you're right, that is, that is hopeful in my point of view. Is yeah. I, I'm an optimist, and yeah. I, I think that we are a long way off from, uh, you know, existential type of risks uh, or even the paired back version from from AI, but you know on the other on the other hand, in terms of like in terms of like jobs and productivity, mm. I, I absolutely think that you know we need to be watching this closely. You have to be aware of this stuff. I, I think that it's only a matter of time. We're not going to be able to put that chat box chat back in the box, are we? Yeah, no, that's right. And, and if we think back, you know you know, BC before COVID, if we can remember that far back, you know the, the big conversation we were having was around the future of work. And it was all about robots taking the jobs. Right? We were all concerned that robots were taking over. Um, you know, and I think what it showed with the borders being closed is that actually we need more robots. We haven't got enough people. Uh, it, the number one issue that has come through in our surveys is it's not cyber. Actually, it's about not being able to get access to people. Okay. Um, so it was about talent and immigration and all of those kind of aspects. Uh, so we should be leaning into the robots, right? And because we desperately need them, it's going to be a great thing for productivity if um, we can retrain people and make sure that you know that there's kind of fair distribution about how all of that works. Uh, but I think the big kind of piece we've missed is a disconnect for a number of the people that I'm talking to is that when we were talking about the future of robots, they were kind of thinking their vision of kind of you know um, hu humanistic type robots that were um, sort of going to be a little, little bit like you know a sci-fi movie yep. not thinking about the fact that actually the robots that are going to take the jobs are going to be the chatbots uh, and that kind of aspects you know, the digital robots and so I think that's the big shift that perhaps in the last couple of years people are having to kind of uh, kind of be confronted by you know I'm a lawyer by training and, and by background and there's all this now all this common conversation and chat going around, you know, that the lawyers are going to be made redundant. There, there's, uh, yeah. I think that's a prime use case of yeah. a large language model, actually, is yeah. all this legal documentation that takes a human years to to read and yeah. be able to pick out and search through uh, so that you can under, understand, you know, things like uh, precedent and uh, uh, even legal documents have blown up in size, haven't they? Yeah, that's uh, right. So, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know where lawyers will stand at the end of the day, but for sure, if I if I was a lawyer, I would be hiring someone to come in and like build my LLM, and so that we know 
uh, the limitations, what it can do, and perhaps where it's going in the future. I uh, I think that I, I think that this is a great breakout for you know this low level or medium level AI. Um, but I I don't know where where it's going to take us. But I feel like we're kind of uh, we, we've done our step up and now we might be cruising for a while, optimizing, mm -hmm. uh, the way that these present chatbots are working while other people go out and, you know, optimize, for, for example, for legal or for medical advice, uh, and these things. And, and, you know, hopefully we'll have time to go away and run those experiments, uh, and come back and say, well, actually, you know, your doctor with the help of their AI, you know, can see twice as many patients and is actually four yeah. times more accurate. Yeah, that's right. And, and we've seen some of that already, haven't we, with um, some of the pathology scanning and, you know, x-rays and scans and other things is a much higher, you know, um, kind of hit rate of, of picking up, you know, cancerous cells and all sorts of things. So there's some great opportunities for, for all of those things. And, you know, I'm before I was at the Institute of Directors, I was the chief exec for the Institute of Chartered Accountants. And the conversation there was about the impact of zero on uh, accounting jobs when actually, you know, this, the work still needs to be done and Xero's, you know, really helped in all of those kind of uh, platforms, but becoming trusted business advisors, right? So that'll be the shift for the legal profession too, yep. is that actually, yes, you can take care of some of the, the paperwork and those other aspects, but there'll still be a role for trusted business advisors. And, um, you know, so that'll hopefully allow us to spend some more human to human time. I mean, that's a really good point. Uh, I still want a human at the front of the plane, at least pretending like, <laughs> yes. like they know, yeah, know, yeah. know what to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With regards to uh, AI, we've seen, we've got upcoming elections. We're in an election cycle. We have an upcoming election in October. And, uh, you know, we've already seen the National Party come out and use AI to produce <laughs> some, uh, to replace stock photos, as they, mm. as they said, to produce some ad material. And, uh, and, you know, pe people jumped all over and said, hey, what's, go what's going on here? Including the, when you zoom in on the photos, picking out some of the hilarious aspects of, of not using, you know, real people in your ad material. Um, wh what do you think about th things like this displacing um, a bunch of, you know, not necessarily whole sectors, but uh, uh, a bunch of other business? Yeah, I, I think there's some interesting challenges, particularly around copyright, isn't there? So, you know, so one of the things that, that we've set just as our own policy um, at the Institute of Directors that we've encouraged the staff to use it for anything that's going to be um, public facing, like, you know, whether it's website content or other things and have a play and to do some stuff, um, but particularly not to be drawing on um, anything we're putting our IP in or where it's going to be creating something where it has the potential that it has picked up um, IP from someone else and some of those other uh, kind of challenges, and also not putting any member data into it or you know anything from uh, oh. any staff data, staff records, those sorts of things. Um, you know, just in terms of the current format and how it's kind of fitting together. Uh, but you know, there's there's going to be you know some some regulation requirements still as we kind of get to um, sort of landing on some of the issues. And when we asked people, there was a on this poll survey overwhelming support that actually New Zealand needs some form of AI regulation. Uh, so, you know, we're starting to see some shifts on that internationally. Um, you know, I hope that New Zealand doesn't kind of get left behind because, you know, our regulatory frameworks usually are, are too slow to kind of keep up. Um, but, you know, we're relying on things like the Privacy Act and, and other aspects already at the moment. But there'll be new industries that get created out of it, right? Ones that we can never even, I couldn't even describe at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, that, and that's the exciting thing is that we don't know how to describe it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, 
copying and pasting data into a into a web interface, especially if it's like say say you've got a spreadsheet, um, you know, company data, personnel data, or something like that, right? I mean, that's a sticky wicket. Um, you know, OpenAI runs ChatGPT. Microsoft is a giant investor, and they're loading up all the Office products mm, that's right, right. with, you know, Clippy 2.0. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and like essentially, we have no idea really what's going on in the in the back end there. Whereas I guess before we kind of thought, oh yeah, our our spreadsheets are stored, you know, in this cloud location, which you know there's regulation about mm. about these sorts of things, um, uh, and or others shouldn't have access to them. But when you start like putting everything in a pot, in a in a large language model pot, so that you can make it better, I mean, that's I'm glad that I'm not having to write that uh, regulation. Yeah, and it's interesting from an assurance perspective, right? An audit that's one of the big kind of challenges that you know, you know, boards and management teams are starting to try and get their heads around. How do we how do we know what it's being asked to do and what it's giving us the answer back? How is it calculating that? Is there bias in the system, for example? And how do you kind of get assurance over a black box when, you know, there's proprietary data in there and um, it's almost impossible to sort of get an understanding about how it's all sort of giving you the answer that it's given you? Uh, so there's going to be some interesting kind of challenges going through about who's responsible for the answer uh, that it gives you and who's responsible for the use of that answer. Uh, and uh, no doubt we'll be looking to our American colleagues uh, who like to litigate a lot of these issues um, to help sort of provide some guidance, I guess. Um, let's talk about DAOs a little bit. Mm. DAOs are kind of born out of the blockchain era, and so you know there's definitely some crossover here. Um, the The blockchain idea is that you can have a decentralized store of data, and you know no one can censor that data, and perhaps you have some value transfer along the way, whether it be through some tokens or th through some Bitcoin, something like that. Um, and, and again, you can't uh, you can't turn off the servers because uh, everyone's running a piece of it themselves, uh, and so. I haven't looked into too much about DAOs, but that's why I'm going to ask you yeah. a little bit about them right now. Uh, uh, the idea of a DAO is that you can take an organizational structure or you can take maybe some governance uh, and you can distribute that throughout the community members, again, so that you don't have like a CEO or maybe you don't have uh, a director or, or you might not even have like a legal foundation anywhere. Uh, we've definitely seen a lot in blockchain land, a lot of, um, a lot of you know, DAOs, uh, claiming mm -hmm. to distribute, you know, tokens and various things. And personally, I don't think I've seen a lot of success in the space. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't have success in the future running a decentralized autonomous organization. Uh, where do you stand on, on, on this? Have you seen examples of success or not in this space? I'm not sure we've got great examples of success yet. I'm not sure that we sort of, that I stand anywhere on it. I'm yeah. just, I'm watching, right? I'm interested to, to see these kind of trends because um, in terms of bringing shareholder voice, if we would sort of say, um, then, then a DAO actually might be a really effective way of bringing shareholder voice because people, you know, great transparency, everybody gets to have an opportunity to have a say. Um, I think there's been a lot of, um, 
you know, poorly executed examples very early on, um, some of which obviously got cyber attacked again, um, but there's some examples in terms of how you kind of set it up, what provisions you've got, rules you've got in place and how you change some of those rules. So I think there's some um, interesting challenges about, you know, the conditions um, under which it's operating. Uh, but here in New Zealand at the moment, uh, we couldn't have a fully operating DAO with, um, because and under our company's law at the moment, directors have to be a natural person. Yep. Uh, so we saw an example in Hong Kong, um, sort of 2016, where um, Vital, it was called, with a, a company in, in Hong Kong who appointed um, an AI to their board um, and formed part of their decision-making. And they've kind of tried to sort of go also down uh, distributed decision-making a little bit more um, with DAOs as well. So we've I think we'll, we'll probably get to some variation of that. Our, um, Australia is already um, looking at some regulation in the space in terms of DAOs and the US as well. Here in New Zealand, not uh, on the priority list, um, given election year as well. That's always a problematic uh, time of year. But I, I think we're going to have to start um, kind of getting some more regulation and guidance as to how this can operate. It's some huge benefits if we can get some of those elements of transparency but I still think it's going to be quite a significant cultural shift for us as humans to not have someone responsible and that's going to be the big shift so I can see models where it could work for parts of how we operate within our corporate structures yeah whether we fully how many generations it'll take us to get to a fully autonomous organization um, without Having, you know, someone responsible, I'd say that's quite a big cultural shift because if we look at what I'm seeing around you know, a greater awareness of people being held to account, that's part of our culture at the moment, who is responsible. Um, I think there'll be some questions asked between, okay, if this fully autonomous company over here, who's holding it to account? Who's the responsible adults if something goes wrong? who's responsible for all of that. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I'm not quite sure that uh, as a as a humanity we've kind of thought that through yet. <laughs> uh, we'll get there. In terms of having a shareholder voice, can you expand on that? Uh, and are you suggesting that shareholders don't always have their voice that they should have? Well, there's, depending upon the size of the organisation and how distributed the shares are, right? Because, you know, if we if we think about why boards were created right back in the very eons of time, it was to be a voice for the shareholders because there was too many people um, to be able to all get together and run the organisation. Um, so, if, you know, if you've got a 1,000 shareholders or 10,000 shareholders uh, trying to get that many people together to make decisions, very difficult. Sure. Um, and so that's what a board of directors is there to do. To be originally, it was there as the representatives um, of that group to act in the best interests of the company. We trust you. We're anointing you as our representative. We trust you to work in the best interests of the company as as our guides. Um, so you know, a, a, you know, blockchain technology, DAOs, etc., really gives some opportunities for really distributed shareholdings uh, to be have a be able to have a, a voice and a say other than just at the AGM you know right uh, so it's quite a different kind of model and it's that we're starting to shift to more real-time 
uh, decision making uh, in terms of you know how boards and how management teams are responding to you know real time um, you know operational retail retail shifts trends uh, and financial information. Um, so real time decision making uh, and feedback and consultation uh, from shareholders are going to become much more of a thing too. I also like the idea in there of adding in this uh, transparency and auditable mm. nature, even yeah. even of like the micro fine decisions uh, that maybe, uh, you know, aren't on the, the trend list or the hit list, um, mm. but that you can then go back and, uh, you know, do things like assess performance and, and be able to make evaluations. And uh, so, I mean, hopefully we can strike a balance there. But I, I would tend to agree with you that uh, transitioning from having humans in control to introducing the idea of even if you just have like one board member, your AI member might be incredibly disruptive. Yes. Uh, and and then like, can't, are you allowed to kick them out? You know, like, you know <laughs> did you think about that rule bef before you brought them in and things like this? Uh, so very interesting times, times ahead or perhaps disruptive times ahead. Uh, the other question, which is one of my favorites to ask is like, who are we holding responsible yeah. uh, for, you know, for generally broad things that I see every day in, in the media, you know, when, when things go pear-shaped and, and we sort of come up, we say, uh, like, can we hold anyone or did we hold anyone responsible? Um, a sort of uh, a not life and death, but a very real example is in, in tech, there's been a whole lot of job cuts lately. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, not just, yep. not just in tech, right? Um, uh, we're at university right now and the universities in New Zealand, mm. um, pretty much all of them are lining up this yeah, year yeah, to decide what to do about their books. And uh, a number of them have already you know, put numbers out there saying that these are the cuts that we're going to have to make. Um, if you look at something like uh, industry, industry changes or uh, we go through COVID and we run out of money and then we have to cut employees, uh, do you see that responsibility lying in part with, with the board? Yeah, absolutely. The board has um, huge responsibilities, and uh, I often sort of joke that if I have a bad day at work as a as a manager, um, I get fired. Not ideal, but recoverable, right? I can move on to another job. But if you have a bad day as a director, um, you know you can not only lose your house, but you can go to jail, right? There's not many jobs where you can go to jail for for um, for doing your job, and so personal liability is a big issue for directors. So they're probably uh, one of the most personally liable um, members of the business community. So, um, you know, most of us are protected by our employer if we're doing our job at work or protected by the company being held to account. Uh, but in their job, they are personally liable. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're responsible, you know, for, from everything which we would fully support, you know, health and safety. Um, you know, personally liable for that, yep. right through to a broad range of um, issues in reporting, um, you know, culture and conduct, you know, all sorts of things that, that they now have to be responsible for. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the big shifts, um, particularly if we're going to have this kind of shift in the technology space. At the moment, directors are personally liable. They are the ones we hold to account it is an incredibly um, responsible position, which is why they have to exercise due care and due diligence in the delivery of that. I'm not quite sure uh, as a community we're quite ready to let that go and, um, and pass that on to the bots. Is that stressful? And it can be incredibly stressful. But I think, you know, the um, 
great governance is transformational though, right? It is really have the opportunity to work on some amazing businesses and to whether, you know, like for me in the not-for-profit space, you know, um, work on some amazing community initiatives. So it does have a great impact on creating stronger communities and a really great and thriving New Zealand. So I think they're challenged by that. Uh, But, you know, often the perception is, or the old days was that directors were so these part-time overpaid kind of playing golf just here for the lunches. That was my perception too. And it's just not the reality, right? You just, um, you do, you wouldn't, uh, most of them, uh, you know, they're earning less money than they did in their management jobs. They're not doing it for the money. Um, you know, the the risk does not match up with the reward uh, in the New Zealand context. Sure, yep. you know, it's a lot of money by New Zealand standards for some of those larger listed boards. But again, the risk exposure and um, is still pretty high as well. So, yeah. well, and those would be very competitive positions, would they not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Very competitive positions, and um, and we need great people to serve on, um, you know. On our government boards and some of the, you know, the people who are leading the health reforms, uh, those sorts of issues, we need, you know, great people who are, who are there to serve and and to deal with some of the, you know, really great, difficult, tricky issues that our communities are facing, and and you know, build really thriving businesses who can, kind of respond to those issues too. Um, in uh, crypto land, we had an epic meltdown last year. <laughs> uh, well, we had we had a few yeah. last year. It was it was a bad year, um, but. Uh, in uh, in September October FTX US mm. the exchange they uh, turned out to be uh, not just insolvent they turned out to be sort of uh, you know incredibly negligent in a lot of their business practices looked like it looked like fun though parts of it didn't it <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought boy you know there's uh, I'm, we really need to look at where the IOD offices are we could move to the was it uh, for the sure. Bahamas wasn't it it, it was it was in the Bahamas yeah, yeah nice. and uh, you know the their leader SBF uh, you know he had a a penthouse rented, and yeah. everyone sort of like had a had this ongoing sleepover where they would they would work and play. And this, uh, I don't know, it was uh, it was perhaps a lot of fun. But now we're we're dealing with the consequences. Yeah. Um, so I've I've got a quote here: Noam Wasserman writing in the Harvard Business Review. Uh, so he's comparing Facebook and FTX. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is quite famous for retaining control of uh, Facebook now Meta. Um, and, he, and he says, at least Facebook had a board of directors and audited financials. FTX resisted creating an official board of directors until January. This is just, you know, nine months before their collapse. Uh, and the VCs who invested in FTX did not get board seats. Uh, its financials were an epic mess. Top executives included several of the founders' college friends. It's like, how did we, with all these red flags, you know, on, on the field, how did we get to the point where people were throwing money at this guy, uh, asking to invest in his business. It's exactly why good governance is needed, right? You know, at the time that uh, Sheryl Sandberg was appointed um, chief operating officer at then Facebook, uh, you know, there was a, a quote, I think, that she was being appointed as parental supervision, right, as an adult or, I bet she loved know, that. Uh, sort of, you know, the, as an adult in the room, you know, because at that particular time of their journey, they were, you know, sort of emergent governance, right, as that kind of, kind of piece and recognising that as organisations grow, you do need to have some parental supervision. There does need to be some checks and balances. There needs to be some people who are working on the business, not just in it. There need some people who can provide some objectivity, uh, some people who can hold management to account. 
right? Uh, so all of those things that are incredibly important, um, some good systems and structures, uh, and you know why do people throw throw money at these sorts of issues? You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Theranos example um, that's played out in the US as well. That's um, Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes, you know, just starting. I think it's an 11 year. Yeah. Um, you know, prison sentence um, for that. You know, I've been following that story as a as a governance story. They had a board, um, but you know, it was in the American term called a vanity board. You know, selected for their names, not necessarily for their skill set. Uh, and there was not enough of holding the CEO to account. So these were like more celebrity figures. Yeah that you could then go shop to other investors and say, hey, look who's on our board. Yeah, absolutely. One of the key differences between governance models here and in the US is that um, you know, uh, here it's quite uncommon for us to have um, the CEO and the chair being held by the same office. Right? So we usually have a separation, an independent chair um, and, and, and um, separate from the CEO. In the US model, it's quite common, although it's starting to decline, and I think these sorts of examples really are starting to push that, uh, where it's quite common to have uh, the, the president, uh, the chair of their board, also be the, the CEO. Right? So on one hand, people will say, well, that means that the, the CEO is directly aligned with what the board mm-hmm. objectives are, uh, you know, and there's um, you know, a shared kind of um, understanding. But the risk of that is that there's not enough kind of supervision in there and, and not enough um, separation between governance and management, not enough holding to account. Uh, and I think that particular example that, um, that's played out in, you know, in the industry in the last sort of you know, six to nine months really would have benefited from uh, some great governance, a little bit more independence, more system structures, yep. more sort of adult supervision. Um, so, and actually, you know, the business would have been much better off, not only protection for shareholders, but actually the business probably would have done a better job, survived, thrived, um, and you know, built more long-term value. So, and yeah, so I think I think it's a it's a pretty, pretty sad example all around, really. In terms of uh, Theranos, if you're filling up your board with, uh, you know, perhaps people that have varied experience, but they're they're a medical company, right? They're doing blood testing. Mm. Uh, would you say like is get like a medical scientist on your board or get, Absolutely. get, yeah. get like a get yeah. like a research doctor on your yeah. boards, you know? Absolutely. And that's the great thing about boards, right? Boards by definition are there because of diversity. Uh, so there's all this conversation about diversity on boards um, and we can have that conversation. But, but by their nature, boards were created by recognition that no one individual, no one CEO can have all of the answers to all of the issues. And by putting a board in place, whether that's, you know, six or eight people who can bring all of those different kind of pie pieces from like trivial pursuits, you know, I'm the expert on this and you're the expert on that. And between us, we make up the entire pie. Um, And so you do want to, um, you know, have some industry knowledge of what your particular industry is. If you're in the ag sector, then get someone who's got ag experience. If you're in the building sector, get someone with building experience. You know, you should have a chartered accountant on your board just because of the nature of the financials. We're all responsible for finance, but get a specialist as well. You know, if you're in a tech sector, make sure you've got some technology skills. And so your boards um, should be reflective of the strategy of the organisation. And the other thing with boards is that they're not permanent appointments usually, right? So they're on a term, you know, somewhere yep. between usually three years and it'll be, a, you know, a six or nine year term, sometimes a bit longer depending upon the nature. But that's a recognition as well that the strategy and the needs of the organisation change over that time. And so we should be refreshing 
bringing in whatever those strategic skills that we need are uh, and bringing that diversity of thought and skill set. Um, but having industry experience on your board, for your, you need to understand how your organisation makes money, um, how, you know, how regulation works in your particular area, understand your stakeholders, that comes from industry experience. Just coming to the end of, end of our time here, is it true or can you tell us, uh, did you have to get New Zealand rugby to specially tailor you branded material because they'd never had a female working for them before? Uh, yeah, so um, I was lucky enough to work at New Zealand Rugby for almost uh, 10 years. Uh, and so there was one uh, one woman who um, was before me that was Dame Therese Walsh. Um, so I she recruited me into the business and when she left, I moved into her role. Uh, so there was uh, two of us at that time working uh, in the executive team, but I was the first to uh, actually uh, have maternity leave while I okay. was working at the New Zealand Rugby Union. Uh, one of the great things about New Zealand Rugby is you get what's called, uh, they have dress calls, so that in a team environment, you know what you're wearing that day. And so everything's numbered, like number ones, number twos, number threes, what you're going to wear. Number ones is your dress suit that you wear for kind of uh, formal team events, photos, board meetings. Uh, and so, of course, when I became pregnant, my number ones no longer fitted me. Oh, right. um, and uh, so for the first time ever, that, and they had to, uh, they hadn't normally uh, had a female outfitting before. So um, they had a male suit provider, but they didn't have a female suit provider because that wasn't something that they'd had to do before. Uh, so they had to specially get in the material from the, uh, from the male suit provider to uh, make sure that I could have a suit made. Um, so yeah, it was a it's interesting a life, time. Things have changed a lot. Uh, since yeah, then. it's a fun anecdote. Our, yeah. where, where are we today? Our, uh, exactly right. So t and I started. Uh, uh, it's twenty years since I started working at New Zealand Rugby. So it's been a while since I've left. So it's been uh, ten years ago since I left. I've moved a long way in that time, and uh, I think it's an interesting snapshot about uh, how far New Zealand's progressed, which is great. Um, I think that's a great place to uh, to finish. Are you up for a few rapid fire questions before we go? Absolutely. Uh, all right. Um, where's your favorite place in New Zealand? My favorite place in New Zealand is uh, Foxton Beach. We've got a, a place there where we try and get away for uh, holidays. And it's like uh, old time New Zealand, no footpaths, just relaxed. Uh, and it's only an hour and a half away from my home. And I love it. Whereabouts is Foxton Beach? Foxton Beach is uh, just north of Wellington. Okay. Uh, what is the best nonprofit you have been a part of, perhaps in a board role or otherwise? Uh, I'd have to say the Wellington Homeless Women's Trust. They do such amazing work uh, and with such a marginalised section of society and I learned so much and it's a real honour to continue to be an ambassador for them because, um, yeah, it's a area of the community that uh, lots of us kind of just want to walk past and not make eye contact. What is the biggest problem facing boards right now, 2023, June? <sighs> Volume overload, I think. Um, just the sheer complexity of issues coming at them and intersected risk. So I think we've kind of the, moved on from um, sort of individualised risk where we can put it in nice little boxes and kind of put it in a matrix and, and say that we've dealt with that. It's the intersectionality of all of those risks and it's one big kind of messy ball of string, um, you know, because you can't talk about climate without talking about technology, and you know, you can't talk about that without talking about culture. Uh, so how they un unravel that ball of string and which little bit to pull first to untie the knot—that's the biggest risk that I've got. Yeah. 
You uh, have your own podcast. Uh, it is a seven-part series. I've listened to most of it. Um, and it won a silver award at the New York yeah. Radio Awards. Congratulations on, on that. Uh, it's called Across the Board. Yes. What, uh, what was the was the best and most tricky part about doing that podcast? Uh, we were incredibly lucky. Sonia Yee, who works in our team, uh, used to be a podcast representative for Radio New Zealand. So she's got amazing skills. So great to have um, her come into the team. Um, the, what we were trying to do was try and make governance accessible. So that was probably the, the most difficult part of it was we were trying to reach a broad audience about what governance is and sort of dispel some of those myths because it impacts all of us every day. Every service we use, you know, every Every product we pick up has usually had some element of governance over the top of it and we just don't realise that it's just sort of a kind of uh, invisible part of our day-to-day -day lives and when it's done well it can um, you know have a huge impact but when it's done badly it can also have an impact so trying to bring that to life was our challenge. <laughs> All right KB thank you very much for coming in today. Wonderful thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain Ninja Podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers.